Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story... A Cosmopolitan in a Cafe by O. Henry At midnight the cafe was crowded. By some chance the little table at which I sat had escaped the eye of incomers, and two vacant chairs at it extended their arms with venal hospitality to the influx of patrons. And then a cosmopolitan sat in one of them, and I was glad. For I held a theory that since Adam, no true citizen of the world has existed We hear of them and we see foreign labels on such luggage, but we find travelers instead of cosmopolites. I invoke your consideration of the scene. The marble-topped tables, the range of leather-upholstered wall seats, the gay company, the ladies dressed in demi-state toilets, speaking in an exquisite visible chorus of taste, economy, opulence for art, the sedulous and largesse-loving garçon, The music widely catering to all with its raids upon the composers, the myelange of talk and laughter, and, if you will, the Wurzburger and the tall glass cones that bend to your lips as a ripe cherry sways on its branch to the beak of a robber jay. I was told by a sculptor from Mount Chunk that the scene was truly Parisian. My cosmopolite was named E. Rushmore Coglin and he will be heard from next summer at Coney Island. He is to establish a new attraction there, he informed me, offering kingly diversion. And then his conversation rang along parallels of latitude and longitude. He took the great round world in his hand, so to speak, familiarly, contemptuously, and it seemed no larger than the seed of a maraschino cherry in a table d'hote grapefruit. He spoke disrespectfully of the equator, He skipped from continent to continent. He derided the zones. He mopped up the high seas with his napkin. With a wave of his hand, he would speak of a certain bazaar in Hyderabad. Whiff, he would have you on skis in Lapland. Zip, now you rode the breakers with the Kanakas at Kealakihaki. Presto, he dragged you through an Arkansas post-oak swamp, let you dry for a moment on the alkali plains of his Idaho ranch, then whirled you into the society of Viennese archdukes. Anon, he would be telling you of a cold he acquired in a Chicago lake breeze and how old Escamilla cured it in Buenos Aires with a hot infusion of the chuchula weed. You would have addressed a letter to E. Rushmore Coglin Esquire, the Earth, Solar System, and the Universe, and have mailed it, feeling confident that it would be delivered to him. I was sure that I had found at last the one true cosmopolitan since Adam, and I listened to his worldwide discourse, fearful lest I should discover in it the local note of the mere globetrotter. But his opinions never fluttered or dropped. He was as impartial to cities, countries, and continents as the winds or gravitation. And as E. Rushmore Coglin prattled of this little planet, I thought with glee of a great, almost cosmopolite who wrote for the whole world and dedicated himself to Bombay. In a poem, he has to say that there is pride and rivalry between the cities of the earth, and that the men that breed from them, they traffic up and down, but cling to their city's hem as a child to the mother's gown. And whenever they walk by roaring streets unknown, 
They remember their native city, most faithful, foolish, fond, making her mere breathe name their bond upon their bond. And my glee was roused because I had caught Mr. Kipling napping. Here I had found a man not made from dust, one who had no narrowboats of birthplace or country, one who, if he bragged at all, would brag of his whole round globe against the Martians and the inhabitants of the moon. Expression on these subjects was precipitated for me, Rushmore Coglin, by the third corner to our table. While Coglin was describing to me the topography along the Siberian Railway, the orchestra glided into a medley. The concluding air was Dixie, and as the exhilarating notes tumbled forth, they were almost overpowered by a great clapping of hands from almost every table. It is worth a paragraph to say that this remarkable scene can be witnessed every evening in numerous cafes in the city of New York. Tons of brew have been consumed over theories to account for it. Some have conjectured hastily that all Southerners in town hide themselves to cafes at nightfall. The applause of the rebel air in a northern city does puzzle a little, but it is not insolvable. The war with Spain, many years generous mint and watermelon crops, a few long-shot winners at the New Orleans racetrack and the brilliant banquets given by the Indiana and Kansas citizens who compose the North Carolina society have made the South rather a fad in Manhattan. Your manicure will lisp softly that your left forefinger reminds her so much of gentlemen's in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, certainly, but many a lady has to work now. The war, you know. When Dixie was being played, a dark-haired young man sprang up from somewhere with a Mosby yell and waved frantically his soft-brimmed hat. Then he strayed through the smoke, dropped into the vacant chair at our table and pulled out cigarettes. The evening was at the period when reserve is thawed. One of us mentioned three Wardsburgers to the waiter. The dark-haired young man indicated his inclusion in the order by a smile and a nod. I hastened to ask him a question because I wanted to try out a theory I had. Would you mind telling me, I began, whether you are from... The fist of E. Rushmore Coglin banged the table, and I was jarred into silence. Excuse me, said he, but that's a question I never like to hear asked. What does it matter where a man is from? Is it fair to judge a man by his post office address? Why, I've seen Kentuckians who hated whiskey, Virginians who weren't descended from Pocahontas, Indianians who hadn't written a novel, funny Englishmen, spendthrift Yankees, cold-blooded Southerners, spendthrift Yankees, cold-blooded Southerners, narrow-minded Westerners and New Yorkers who were too busy to stop for an hour on the street to watch a one-armed grocer's clerk do up cranberries in paper bags. Let a man be a man and don't handicap him with the label of any section. Pardon me, I said, but my curiosity was not together an idle one. I know the South, and when the band plays Dixie, I like to observe. I have formed the belief that the man who applauds that air with special violence and ostensible sectional loyalty is invariably a native of either Secaucus, New Jersey or the district between Murray Hill Lyceum and the Harlem River, this city. I was about to put my opinion to the test by inquiring of this gentleman when you interrupted with your own larger theory, I must confess. And now the dark-haired young man spoke to me, and it became evident that his mind also moved along its own set of grooves. I should like to be a periwinkle, said he mysteriously, on a top of a valley and sing Tu Ralu Ralu. 
This was clearly too obscure, so I turned again to Coglin. I've been around the world twelve times, said he. I know an Esquimau in Rupermavik who sends to Cincinnati for his neckties. And I saw a goat herder in Uruguay who won a prize in a Battle Creek breakfast food puzzle competition. I pay rent on a room in Cairo, Egypt, and another in Yokohama all the year round. I've got slippers waiting for me in a tea house in Shanghai. And I don't have to tell him how to cook my eggs in Rio de Janeiro or Seattle. It's a mighty little old world. What's the use of bragging about being from the north or the south or the old manor house in the dale or Euclid Avenue, Cleveland or... Pikes Peak or Fairfax County, Virginia, or Hooligans Flats, or any place. It'll be a better world when we quit being fools about some mildewed town or ten acres of swampland just because we happen to be from there. You seem to be a genuine cosmopolitan, I said admiringly, but it would also seem that you decry patriotism. A relic of the Stone Age, declared Coglin warmly. We are all brothers. Someday all this petty pride in one city or state or section or country will be wiped out and we'll all be citizens of the world as we ought to be. But while you are wandering in foreign lands, I persisted, do not your thoughts revert to some spot, some dear and nary a spot, interrupted E.R. Coglin flippantly. The terrestrial globular planetary hunk of matter slightly flattened at the poles and known as the Earth, is my abode. I've met a good many object-bound citizens of this country abroad. I've seen men from Chicago sit in a gondola in Venice on a moonlit night and brag about their drainage canal. I've seen a southerner on being introduced to the King of England and that monarch without batting his eyes. The information that his grand-aunt on his mother's side was related by marriage to the Perkinses of Charleston. I knew a New Yorker who was kidnapped from ransom by some Afghanistan bandits. His people sent over the money and he came back to Kabul with the agent. Afghanistan, they said to him through an interpreter. Well, not so slow, do you think? Oh, I don't know, says he. And he begins to tell him about a cab driver at 6th Avenue and Broadway. Those ideas don't suit me. I'm not tied down to anything that isn't 8,000 miles in diameter. Just put me down as E. Rushmore Coglin, citizen of the terrestrial sphere. My cosmopolitan made a larger dew and left me, for he thought he saw someone through the chatter and smoke whom he knew. So I was left with a would-be periwinkle, who was reduced to Wartsburger without further ability to voice his aspirations to perch, melodious upon the summit of a valley. I sat reflecting upon my evident cosmopolitan, wondering how the poet had managed to miss him. He was my discovery, and I believed in him. How was it? The men that breed from them, they traffic up and down, but cling to their city's hem as a child to the mother's gown. Not so E. Rushmore Coglin. With the whole world for his... My meditations were interrupted by a tremendous noise and conflict in another part of the cafe. I saw above the heads of the seated patrons E. Rushmore Coglin and a stranger to me engaged in terrific battle. They fought between the tables like titans, and glasses crashed, and men caught their hats up and were knocked down, and a brunette screamed and a blonde began to sing teasing. My cosmopolitan was sustaining the pride and reputation of the earth when the waiters closed in on both combatants with their famous flying wedge formation and bore them outside, still resisting. 
I called McCarthy, one of the French garçons, and asked him the cause of the conflict. The man with the red tie, that was my cosmopolite, said he, got hot on account of things about the bum sidewalks and water supply of the place he come from by the other guy. Why, said I, bewildered, that man is a citizen of the world, a cosmopolite. Originally from Matawamkeag, Maine, he said, continued McCarthy, and he wouldn't stand for no knock in the place. So there you have it. Everybody's got a little Homer in him. And that Homer's going to stay there no matter what you do. No matter what you say outside, you still have a little piece of home inside. I want to remind you that we're always looking for great stories like this one to feature on the show. Story suggestions can be emailed to me at bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>